0: What will happen to you when you die? I know that can be a kind of startling question to ask, and that's probably a pretty uh, abrupt way to begin today's message to just stand up here and right off the bat go, uh, Good morning. You're all going to die. Uh, what then? Without any sort of build-up to kind of prepare you for that question, it's kind of an odd place to begin a conversation. You don't normally walk up to someone and say, so what do you think is going to happen to you after you're dead? That's uh, not the way to begin, but that's where I want to begin today. What will happen to you when you die? There's probably no more important question a person can ask themselves but that one single question. What will happen to me when I die? I don't know how often you stop to really think about death, but there really isn't any aspect of your life that is more important for you to think about and get answers to than the matter of your death. I mean, do you realize that your existence will be, will be defined primarily by your death, After all, you will only be alive for just a handful of years on this planet, maybe 60 or 70 or 80, at most maybe even 90 or 100, but you will be dead, or rather you will go and be whatever happens to you after death, not just for thousands or millions, but for billions and even trillions of years, you will be dead, so to speak, for eternity. The life that you're living right now is just the smallest drop in the vast ocean of time that you will exist in after your death. So what will happen to you at death? What will your existence be like when you die? The Bible tells us that there are only two possible destinations. You'll either go to heaven, where you will enjoy eternal blessing in unbroken fellowship with God, or you will go to hell, where you will suffer eternal torment under the wrath of God. That's it. Those are the only two options. You won't go to some kind of third place where you will suffer just a little bit of torment long enough for you to pay for your sins so that you can then go to heaven. And you won't just go extinct, just sort of fall asleep and pass out of existence. There are only two options, heaven or hell. And the Bible tells us that there is only one way to get to heaven, and that is through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. You cannot go to heaven by being a good enough person because, according to the Scripture, absolutely no one is good enough to be accepted by God. God demands absolute perfection. He requires a person to be completely righteous. And while it is theoretically possible for a person to match that standard, after Adam there has been no one save for one man who has been able to meet it. In the words of Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And this is because from Adam on, we have all been born with an innate desire for sin, to rebel against God. It's in our nature. It's who we are. So contrary to what many people seem to think, you will not get to heaven just by being good enough. Nor will you get there on the off chance that somehow, just maybe... God might just overlook your sin, pretend it never happened, as if it wasn't a big deal. No, He is a holy and just God who will punish every sin. So He will not simply overlook sin, nor will He forget it. He's not like you or I. There are no limits to His knowledge, and He does not make mistakes. He can know and does know all things. Not a single thought or deed will ever escape His notice. So you cannot expect that your sin will simply be forgotten. No, according to the Scriptures, there is only one way into heaven. And that is through faith in Jesus Christ. You are not sinless, but Jesus is. He is the Son of God. Come to earth to live a perfect life. And to not just live a perfect life, but in living a perfect life, to then offer Himself up as a perfect sacrifice, as a substitute for sin, so that to everyone who believes in Him, He might grant eternal life. This sacrifice that He offered up was accepted by the Father. And we know this because on the third day Jesus was raised from the dead as the firstfruits of all those who will likewise rise from the dead. And so now you can be saved, reconciled to God, forgiven of sin through Jesus Christ. As it says in Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. All that you must do to receive this gift is believe in Christ. You must only accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, trusting in Him for the forgiveness of your sins, and you can be saved. You must come to Jesus, not only recognizing who He is, not only recognizing His authority and perfect righteousness, but also recognizing who you are, both in your unrighteousness and complete dependence on Him. And when you do this, When you come to Jesus asking for forgiveness of sins, God accepts Jesus' death as the punishment for your sins. He forgives your sins and you receive eternal life with God. That is the way into heaven. And it is the only way. As Peter says in Acts 4.12, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is no other way to be saved but through faith in Jesus Christ, because only in the cross of Christ is there payment for the penalty of sin, which is infinite wrath and death. So between these two destinations, heaven and hell, it is important to note that there is only one way to heaven, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ. Meaning that if your desire is to go to heaven when you die, if you wish for that to be your eternal destination of these two destinations, heaven or hell, then that is the way to get there. It is by trusting in Jesus Christ. The question is, have you done this? Have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ? There's no more significant question that you can ever ask yourself. Have you placed in Jesus Christ? Are you a Christian? That's a question that's easy to assume given where we live. Because where we live, we hear the gospel in some form or fashion all the time. Truth is, all the stuff that I said, just said about heaven and hell, is probably not new to many of you, if anyone. We're very familiar with these truths. We know what the Bible says about how to get to heaven. But make no mistake, there is a very distinct difference between merely hearing this message and actually accepting it. It is very possible to know the gospel without having applied it. In fact, the scripture even tells us that there are many, many people who will actually hear the gospel, who will even understand it at some level without ever applying it. And this is not sufficient for salvation. To be saved, you must not only hear the message, you must believe on it. So what about you? Do you merely know the gospel? Or have you applied it? Have you only heard the message... Or have you actually believed it? That's the question that Jesus is going to answer in our passage for this morning, which is Matthew 13, verses 1 to 23. In this passage, Jesus tells a parable, an illustrative story to the crowds. And in this passage, He's going to make a distinction between those who merely hear the message of salvation without actually accepting it, and those who both hear the message and receive it in faith. This is absolutely critical information for anyone who wants to spend eternity in heaven with God to know. You must know the difference between merely hearing without faith and actually receiving the message of salvation in faith so that you can be sure that you have indeed responded with saving faith. So let's go ahead and look at what Jesus has to say about what it means to receive his message in faith. And let's begin by reading the passage together. The passage, once again, is Matthew 13, verses 1 to 23. Uh, This parable and its explanation occurs in two parts. First, there is the parable in verse 9, and then there is its explanation in verses 18 to 23. There's also a a brief statement explaining the purpose of the parables in verses 10 to 17. Uh, We looked at that part of this passage last week, so we'll be mostly ignoring that section this week. But let's still go ahead and read the entire passage together. Have you merely... Heard the gospel or have you accepted it in faith? This is what Jesus has to say about the issue. Matthew writes this. That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Then the disciples came and said to him, "'Why do you speak to them in parables?' For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, 30. Of course our passage opens with Jesus teaching of the parable in verses 1 through 9. And in one sense the parable isn't too hard to understand. Jesus shares this story about farming, about this sower who goes out to sow seed. And and this could potentially confuse those who are unfamiliar with the details of farming for for city dwellers uh, like me. But the elements of farming that Jesus describes here in this story are so basic that even those who are almost completely ignorant of farming can understand what he's saying here. Every Galilean, farmer or not, would have been incredibly familiar with the elements of this story because Galilee was filled with rich and productive farmland. Farming was an ingrained part of their culture. But even still, the elements of this story are so basic that you don't have to be a Galilean, much less have an education in farming in order to understand it. A person can understand what Jesus is saying here through basic observation. Even if you've never seen someone sow seed before, if you've ever lived around a tree, You can still understand Jesus' point. It almost doesn't need an explanation. This sower goes out to sow. And that is to say he goes to plant seed in his field. This is obviously a lot of seed that he's planting. And everyone who knows what it's like when you're planting this large amount of seed, you don't do it by going and digging a hole and planting every seed individually hand by hand into the ground. You scatter it. You scatter it broadly across the ground. Understanding that as you do this, some of the seed will naturally sprout and put down roots into the ground and grow and produce crops. Now, of course, there's a little more to it than that. For example, at some point you're probably going to need to till the ground so that the soil is soft enough for the roots to penetrate it. And there's some debate about whether this was done before or after sowing in Galilee at this time. But for the purpose of this story, that's irrelevant. Jesus never talks about tilling or any other factors like that which prepare the seed for the ground in this story. So uh, you don't really need to understand any of that to get his point here. The point is that the sower is scattering a large amount of seed across the ground because he's planting a whole field of crops. Well, because of the indiscriminate nature of this kind of planting, the seed naturally begins to fall on different types of ground. It doesn't just fall on the field. It doesn't just fall on the the soil that he intends to plant seed on, it falls on some other ground around the field as well. Some of it falls along a path. And that may seem odd. You may wonder how a farmer could be that reckless to sow seed that would would fall on a path, but it's actually not strange at all because paths in ancient Galilee didn't work quite the same way that they do today. Today, roads or sidewalks are built around the edges of a person's property by local governments, and when we go somewhere, we travel along those paths. But in ancient Galilee, people didn't necessarily bother with observing property lines when they traveled. They just started walking. And as they traveled, they didn't walk around a field. They'd walk through it. And of course, as a large number of people traveled the same basic routes, they would naturally wear down a path in the process. And that's just how people traveled. It was a normal part of the culture. And what this means is that it wasn't uncommon for a field to have a path running right through the middle of it. That is why some of the seeds are falling along the path. The path is cutting through the middle of this, farmer field, this farmer's field. Obviously, this ground is going to be quite hard from the foot traffic that's passed over it. The earth has been repeatedly packed down by the people traveling on it. So it's going to be very difficult for the seed to put down any kind of roots into the ground in this type of situation. The seed is just going to lie there exposed on the open, hard ground. And this makes it easy pickings for any surrounding birds to come along and eat. Other seed falls on rocky ground. And this doesn't necessarily refer to ground with rocks poking up out of the soil. A farmer probably wouldn't be so foolish as to plant seed on that type of ground intentionally. Rather, this is ground with a layer of rock hidden beneath the surface. Uh, Earlier this year, my wife and I decided to plant a garden at our house, and the first step in this process meant tilling the ground so that we could plant seeds in it. Uh, Caleb and Elise actually came over with their rototiller to help us uh, do that. And as we tilled up the soil, we inevitably found these huge rocks just a few inches beneath the grass. And we had no idea they were there when we started tilling, but as we tilled the ground, they started to show up. Well, once we found these rocks, we... Got out the shovel and dug them up out of the ground and set them aside. And the reason was because of exactly what Jesus describes here. The sower sows this seed, and some of it falls on the rocky soil, and it's able to penetrate the earth and set down roots, but not very far. Once those roots hit that rocky surface, it's, they stop, they don't go down any further. And that may not be a problem initially. Maybe there's even some type of, of moisture. If this is like a layer of rock, perhaps there's even some type of moisture trapped up on the surface above that rocky layer that allows the plant to even flourish and explode in its growth faster than the plants surrounding it. But eventually the heat of the sun is going to come along and it's going to completely dry out the surface of that soil as it torches the earth. Now if the plant had a deeper root... That wouldn't be so much of a problem because there would still be moisture down deeper in the earth that it could draw on to survive and grow, but this seed was sown on rocky soil. Its roots don't go down that far because they've been prevented by the rocks, meaning that as the sun comes and scorches the earth, these plants wither and die for lack of resources. When the sun hits them, they simply dry up because they don't have the resources to survive that kind of heat. Some other seeds fall on some thorns. Among some thorns. Now, whether this means that the seeds fell among, like, thorn bushes, maybe there's some kind of hedgerow around the property, or whether it means that they actually fell among ground that had seeds uh, of thorny weeds on it, the point is still the same. These thorny plants are hardier and more aggressive than the plant that the farmer is growing, and so the farmer's seed still sets down roots, and it begins to grow. The only problem is that these thorny plants are able to grow faster than the crops. Their roots extend down into the earth faster than the, than the farmer's seed. They suck up all the water that's there. The weeds spring up over the plant. They block out the sun. And before long, the farmer's plant is completely deprived by the, of the nutrients that it needs to grow by these weeds. And so the plant remains either stunted or it may even completely wither up and die. The rest of the seed, though, falls along good ground. It doesn't fall along a path, or along rocky ground, or among weeds. It falls on good soil, which is to say that it falls on soil that is conducive to growth. The ground is soft enough that this seed is able to put down roots that extend down deep into the earth. And it has no obstructions to prevent those roots from from driving down deep into the earth to suck up that moisture. Nor are there any complete competing plants to fight for this soil this ground has everything that a plant needs to grow it is conducive to growth this ground produces a strong plant that flourishes and as the plant the plant flourishes it produces a great crop a fruitful crop now some seed may land on better soil than others and so some plants may produce a larger crop than others but regardless all this seed produces some kind of yield That's what happens to seed when it's planted on good soil. It produces fruit. That's the the basic meaning of the parable. Now, on its surface, that's not a hard parable to understand. This is not rocket science. Like I said before, even if you've never farmed before, you can understand the point of this illustration. I mean, if you've only ever lived in a city, you can understand how this works because you've seen a tree planted beside a sidewalk and you've seen it drop seeds that don't dig down into the sidewalk and you've seen how that tree can't grow through the sidewalk. You've maybe even seen its roots break the sidewalk as it stretches out across the ground. Really, everybody can understand the basic parts of this parable as Jesus explains it. In this sense, the parable is not hard to understand. It's actually very easy to understand. But in another sense, it is hard to understand because although the parts of this story are easy to understand, the meaning of those parts in and of themselves are not. After all, Jesus doesn't offer any sort of explanation to this story, at least not initially, not here publicly in verses 1 to 9. He just says, A sower went out to sow, and then when the story's done, he ends it at that. We talked about this last week. Stories can be helpful when they explain a point. If I say God's love is unconditional, and then I go and illustrate that point with the story of Hosea and Gomer, that story helps explain and clarify my meaning. But if I say without any sort of context, there was a man married to an adulterous woman, and tell their story without any sort of explanation, that's not helpful at all. Because you don't know what I'm illustrating. You don't know what the point of the story is. That's exactly what's going on here with this parable, at least from the crowd's perspective. Jesus says a sower goes out to sow, and he gives the parable, and then by the end, the people can understand the story. That's pretty basic, that's clear. They just don't know what it means, they don't know what it represents. The point it's supposed to teach is unclear. And in this way the most significant details of these first 9 verses of this passage probably occurs in verses 1 to 2 when Matthew says this. He says that same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea and great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down and the whole crowd stood on the beach. Matthew says that Jesus went out and told this parable to the crowds that same day according to verse 1. That same day, Jesus goes out of, quote, the house and sits by the sea and and, and teaches this parable. And of course, what this does is draw us back into the preceding context of these verses. We hear that all this happened the same day, and we should be asking ourselves, the same day as what? And for that matter, what house? What house did Jesus leave to go teach by the sea? What's going on here? And the answer to all of that is found back in chapter 12 where we find this whole exchange between Jesus and the scribes and the Pharisees in which Jesus condemns the scribes and the Pharisees for blaspheming the Holy Spirit. In that chapter we saw Israel's religious leaders deny overwhelming evidence of the Holy Spirit's testimony to Jesus' ministry. They denied the Holy Spirit's work in Jesus' And Jesus responded to this denial by saying that they had committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which is a sin that he says will not be forgiven. Jesus then goes on even further to explain that because of this sin, he would no longer be performing any additional signs for their repentance and belief because the hardness of their heart indicated that the only thing that awaited the nation at this point forward would be the judgment that God would inflict upon them for their refusal to accept his message of salvation. Matthew connects that whole encounter with this parable when he makes this statement that same day. Do you understand? Matthew isn't just throwing that statement in randomly. He's saying it because he wants you to understand that this parable was delivered in the context of those events back in Matthew 12. This parable happens in the context of this rejection that it happens in chapter 12. After Jesus finishes that encounter with the Pharisees, he leaves the house and immediately tells this parable of the sower who went out to sow seeds. Matthew wants you to know that. Understand, for the most part, Matthew isn't typically interested in the timing of events. So when he gives you some indicator of when something happens, it's important. He's not just doing that for narrative effect. He's not just moving the story along. He's doing it because it helps communicate the point he's trying to get across. And that's what is is exactly what's happening here. Why does Jesus deliver this parable? Why does he tell this story without the explanation? The disciples asked that question in verse 10, and what we saw last week is that it goes back to the blasphemy of the Spirit in chapter 12. That's what Jesus explains in verses 11 to 17. He doesn't intend to be understood by the crowds. He means for the parable to be vague. He wants to speak in a way that allows him to reveal additional truths to his disciples and to those who are ready and willing to accept his message while at the same time hiding that truth from those who have rejected it. And the the reason he's doing this is because the crowds have already rejected Jesus' message. They have determined to reject the truth, and so Jesus isn't going to give them anymore. They're not worthy of it. And not only that, they're not only not worthy of it, but they couldn't accept it even if they could understand it. They have a, they've committed a sin that will not be forgiven. That is why he speaks to them in parables. And what is this parable about? Jesus is going to answer that in the next few verses, but even without any sort of explanation, we should be able to get to the, get the point when we hear that Jesus delivered this parable that same day. This is a parable that explains the rejection that just happened. It explains why some are able to receive the word of the kingdom of heaven, why some are able to see the work of the Holy Spirit, clearly testify through Jesus and accept it, and why others are not. It explains why part of Israel was was willing to accept their Messiah, while the rest of Israel was not. So then, what does Jesus say? How does He explain this parable? We may be able to determine the general sense of this parable from the circumstances that led Jesus to deliver it. We may be able to figure out what Jesus is addressing by the immediate context. But what is the meaning of this parable? What is Jesus saying about Israel's rejection with this story? And That may not seem clear just by itself. In fact, even the disciples themselves were apparently a little perplexed about the interpretation of this parable. Luke tells us, Uh, For instance, that the disciples asked Jesus about the meaning of this parable. Mark implies that they didn't understand it. And that won't do. The disciples are meant to understand this parable. And so Jesus instructs them as to its meaning. But he does so privately in verses 18 to 23. Let's read that section one more time. Here's the explanation of the parable. Matthew 13, verses 18 to 23. Jesus says, hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. So, what do we discover about the meaning of this parable from this explanation? Well, we discover that the seed refers to the word of the kingdom in verse 19. Luke calls it more generally the word of God in his account of this passage, but here Matthew refers to it more specifically as the word of the kingdom. It is God's revelation of himself and of his dealings with man. It is his revelation of his intent to restore the planet under the rule of Christ That is the broad teaching of the Scripture. It is a revelation of God's coming kingdom and of how men can be a part of that through Jesus Christ. That is what Jesus was sent to proclaim. He proclaimed the coming of the kingdom. He preached, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The sower is the one who is casting this seed. And in context, we should probably understand this to be primarily a reference to Christ Himself. But really it could refer to anyone who's going out to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. If you think back to the end of chapter 9, Jesus has already told his disciples to pray for laborers to go out into the harvest before then commissioning them to go out and preach in the surrounding regions of Galilee. Uh, So it makes sense that while Jesus is primarily referring to himself when he speaks of the sower, the analogy really extends to anyone who goes and spreads the word of the kingdom. John the Baptist would have been an example of a sower. The disciples were sowers. Today, when a Christian shares the gospel, they are a sower. The soil refers to different types of individuals who give different kinds of responses to this kingdom message. And this is really the heart of this message. If you look at verse 18, Jesus calls this the parable of the sower. But the point of the parable is really the soils. Throughout the story, the sower and the seed are constants. These don't change. The one thing that does change is the type of soil. That's where the lesson is. It's about the different reactions of the soil to this kingdom seed and what causes these reactions. Jesus begins by explaining the, soil that fell along the, or the, the seed that fell along the path. This represents those who hear the message of the kingdom but do not understand it. Just as the seed that falls along the path is unable to penetrate into the earth and set down roots into the soil, so also the word of the kingdom is not able to penetrate the hearts of these individuals. And if you notice here in verse 19, Jesus uses this word, understand. He uses that same word back in verses 13 to 15, understand. And it's the same word in the Greek in every instance, just as it is translated as understand every time here in the English. If you recall... Back in verses 13 to 15, Jesus explained the reason why the people could not understand his message. And it was because they willfully, intentionally blinded their eyes and closed their ears to the truth. They did not want to come to repentance, and so they willfully shut themselves off to the truth. And they did this in the days of Isaiah, just as they did with the blasphemy of the Spirit in Matthew 12. In other words, the reason why they could not understand is because their hearts were hard. It was not so much that they could not see the truth as much as they would not see the truth. The reason they did not understand was because they refused to understand. The connection and terminology between these verses is probably not accidental. Why does the seed fail to penetrate the ground on this path soil? It's because of the person's hard heart. The problem is that this person is not that this person cannot understand the truth of the kingdom it's that they refuse to understand it. They refuse to accept it. In a sense they can perhaps understand the message intellectually, cognitively they know what it's saying but they don't like it. Just as the people of Israel understood Isaiah's message enough to know that they didn't want it, that's what is happening with this people. They understand the message enough to know that they don't want it. And so they willfully shut themselves off to this truth so that it cannot enter their heart, convict them, and bring them to repentance. They do not understand the truth because they suppress it. They push it away. Jesus says that when this happens, the evil one, that is Satan, comes and snatches away what has been sown. Luke adds the additional detail that Satan does this quote so that they may not believe and be saved. So that's what the birds represent in this story. They represent Satan who immediately comes in and removes the seed that was sown. And we can understand what Jesus is saying here. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.4 4, that, that Satan, quote, blinds the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. This is to say that Satan plays an active role in deceiving unbelievers so that they cannot accept the gospel so that they regard it as foolishness. The picture we have here is of a a person hearing the truth and closing up their ears saying, no, I don't want to hear that. I don't want to believe that. Only for Satan right there, ready at hand, all too ready to step in and supply the lie that will allow them to suppress that truth. Do you understand? who it is? Who is it that deceives the world? Do unbelievers deceive themselves or does Satan deceive them? And the answer to that question is yes. It's a both and. Unbelievers seek to deceive themselves, and Satan supplies the lies that allow them to do that. Unbelievers turn away from God, wanting to ignore the truth, and Satan provides the red hot iron that sears their consciences so that they can ignore the truth. It's a joint effort. Satan is selling the lies that the unbeliever is desperate to buy. The inevitable result of this partnership, as Jesus explains here, is that the word of the kingdom is utterly removed from that individual. They heard the message, and perhaps they could even recognize the truth for a short time, but now no longer. It's not like they spend any time thinking about it, or considering it. Or if they do, they they, they regard it as utter foolishness. They do not understand it anymore. It doesn't compute. Because it doesn't fit within the system of lies that they've constructed to suppress that truth. So it doesn't convict them in the slightest anymore. It doesn't have any kind of impact on them. Its influence has been completely removed. They're dead to it. This is why they do not believe. Jesus then goes on to explain the seed that fell on the rocky soil. Now the thing that's really interesting about both this soil and the next one is that both apparently display some kind of receptivity to the gospel. Jesus explains that this rocky seed represents the individual who initially receives the message with great joy, only to later wilt under the rejection and even persecution that comes with being one of his disciples. So again, there's a a level of receptivity here. There's not an immediate rejection of the gospel like there is with the road soil, but, but the seed doesn't penetrate deeply enough to survive those kinds of hardships and trials that the disciple experiences. Again, there's a a superficial acceptance of the gospel. But but just under the surface of this soil, this individual possesses the same hardened heart that the road soil possesses. And this keeps the seed from really penetrating at the level it needs to to penetrate in order to survive. You've You've seen individuals like this before. They're willing to accept the gospel in part. They're able to accept... Those aspects of the gospel, for instance, that sound good. Forgiveness of sin, the love of God, grace. They'll receive those aspects of the gospel with great eagerness. But once the other side of this message hits, once they start to experience the kind of difficulty and hardship that comes with discipleship, they immediately fall away. Like the crowds in John 6 who come to Jesus after the feeding of the 5,000, looking for more bread, they're very willing to follow Christ while He's giving them stuff. But once there starts to be a cost to discipleship, they're done. They walk away. Again, they were able to accept part of Jesus' message, but not all of it. They kept their heart hard to those aspects of the message that required something of them. And so when the heat starts to burn they wither up and die. They're not prepared to endure that kind of hardship, and so they walk away. Literally, they stumble, Jesus says. That's the word that Jesus uses when He says, fall away, stumble. And it can mean to take offense. That person is offended by that part of the message, and they walk away. Of course, the ironic part of all of this is that those who often show, these are often those who show the most exuberance about the gospel initially. I mean, they'll be in church every time the doors are open, they'll be there at every Bible study, they'll be telling all their friends about God. And why not? It's not hard to get excited about a message that only promises blessing and joy. But one that promises not only that, but also transformation through difficulty and hardship as well. That takes a little bit more measured approach. So while this one will initially look the strongest, they will often die soon, and they will do so precisely because they have not accepted the entire message. But the one who accepts the whole message, the one who swallows the entire thing, they may not show the same amount of exuberance initially. They, they have joy, but it's a sober-minded joy because they understand what they're getting into. They've counted the cost, and they've examined the message carefully to make sure they understand and accept it. And they've accepted it for what it truly is. This one may not have the same kind of unbridled joy that the rocky soil has, but they will grow. And even more than this, they will persevere. Because they've truly accepted that seed. The thorny soil also shows a measure of receptivity to the gospel. This individual shows genuine interest in the gospel. But according to Jesus, that interest is rivaled by competing interests. The cares of the world, the anxieties of life, fear, worry... And not only this, but the deceitfulness of riches, materialism, greed. These things choke out that person's commitment to the gospel. This individual can see the truth of the gospel. They understand it, but at a certain level, and at a certain level they may even believe it and respond. But they've never really repented of their love for the world. They've never really turned away from the idols they've worshipped. And this can be more than just security or success that they're seeking. Whatever a person's greatest love is, whatever it is they desire the most, whatever it is they desire more than anything else, that is the thorny plant that Jesus is describing here. This can be something like the praise of men. It can be something like physical, physical pleasures like alcohol or sex, or it can even be something more wholesome and worthy of desiring, so long as it is placed under the authority of Jesus, things like family and friends. The problem with the person with a thorny heart is that they haven't given themselves over to complete commitment to Jesus just yet. They still have idols that they're worshiping, and they're trying to hold on to both Jesus and the idol at the same time. They want Jesus and their career. They want Jesus and their immoral relationships. Jesus and respect from their peers. Jesus and their friends. They're okay with Jesus. They like him. But just so long as he doesn't take the things that they love from them. And this doesn't work. As Jesus said in Matthew six twenty four, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. Just as a slave can only be completely devoted to one true master, so also a person can only have one supreme desire that drives the direction of their life. And whatever that desire is will be determined when it conflicts with other competing desires. At that point, the individual will have to choose which desire to follow. And in choosing to follow the one, they will inevitably choose to neglect the other as well. In other words, if you're, if you're more committed to your job than you are to Jesus, then you're inevitably going to fall away. You're going to pay more attention to your job than you will to Jesus. And in the long run, your career will begin to so dominate your life that Jesus will become an afterthought. It won't be so much that you'll outright reject Jesus. You'll just eventually forget about it. This is what happens to the seed that is sown on the thorny soil. This type of person hears the gospel and they actually approve of it and they want to believe it at a certain level. But as much as they love Jesus, they just love these other things more. They have idols that they worship and love more than Jesus, and they choose to follow them. And, and this can happen suddenly, as it did with the rich young ruler in Matthew 19. Uh, if, you, if you recall that passage, this man heard Jesus' demands, and he, he responded, wanted to respond to the gospel. But when Jesus told him that he would have to sell all of his possessions to enter into the kingdom, the scripture says that he went away sad. Because he had many possessions. He recognized the truth and he wanted to respond, but he loved his things more. So he counted the cost before entering into the kingdom. He realized he couldn't cut it and he just walked away. His concerns for the world sprung up immediately and choked out the gospel right away. This kind of concern can be immediate like that. Or it can. for others, it can be more gradual. They may never actually determine to walk away. Like the rich young ruler did. They just sort of slowly drift away over time. They begin strong. They faithfully study the scriptures. Again, they're at church every week. They're talking of Christ. They're seeking to grow in their faith. They're sharing the gospel. But they're trying to pursue their interest in the world at the same time. And over time, their interest in Christ just wanes. And little by little, almost imperceptibly, those marks of faithfulness just sort of fade the thorns grow in and they just choke out the life of that seed. One thinks of Paul's companion Demas, who was there by Paul's side as he wrote the letter of Colossians under house arrest, but who would then later desert Paul out of a love for the world as Paul neared his death. We've all seen people like this before. Maybe you've even had a Demas in your life at one point. Someone who received the gospel in joy and was a faithful disciple for a period of time before they eventually just drifted away. And it's a heartbreaking experience to see someone who can see the truth of the gospel so clearly and even respond to it with great love and approval just to walk away out of their great love for the world. So much better it is to see the seed that falls on good soil. The seed doesn't wither under the heat of hardship and trial. It isn't choked out by the competing desires of the world. No, it accepts the whole message. And so its roots dig deep into the soil. It takes firm root. And then as it's nourished by the life that is found in the full acceptance of this message, its leaves stretch up high into the sky. And as it grows, there are no weeds there to block out the sun. And so it drinks in both the sun and the rain. And it not only perseveres, it flourishes and produces an incredibly great yield. And you may be asking yourself, what kind of yield? What does the fruit of this crop look like? Jesus doesn't tell us directly, but it's probably safe to assume that he's speaking of the fruit of repentance. If you recall, when John the Baptist proclaimed the coming of the kingdom of heaven, he warned that those who didn't bear fruit in keeping with repentance would be cut down and thrown into the fire. On a couple of different occasions in this gospel, Jesus has also said that you can tell a tree by its fruit. And in both instances, it would seem that he's talking about a person's deeds. So what is the fruit? It is the fruit of repentance. And repentance, as Jesus has described it in this gospel, it is... Humility before God and dependence on God and love and compassion springing up out of faith. It is what Paul refers to as the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. It is godly character in the true sense of the word. This is how you can determine whether or not the seed falls on good soil. A seed that falls on good soil produces good fruit. To put it simply, how do you know whether or not a person has truly received the gospel? It is by their righteousness. It is by their fruit. It is by, and listen, I know this can sound scary when I say it, it is by their deeds. And again, I know that sounds scary. Once, once belief is measured by deeds, and there's this inevitable question that comes up, which is, how many deeds? How much fruit? That's a scary question to ask, because it can make us think that salvation is by works. Just meet X or Y standard, and you can know that you'll be saved. But the question isn't really, how much fruit from, should the Christian have? But rather, do they have any fruit? Look, Jesus doesn't say that everyone is going to have the same amount of yield here, Right? He actually walks the number down backwards. Some plants yield a hundredfold, some 60, some just 30. That's not emphasizing the abundance of the harvest. It's emphasizing the fact that there is a harvest. The last plant may only have a third of the fruit that the first one has, but it still bears a great quantity of fruit. Point is, the seed that falls on, on good soil bears fruit. This is how you know it's good soil. Now, I would imagine that at this point, there are a lot of different theological questions that can be raised. For example, one of the questions that probably arises from this parable is, so is this parable saying that a person can lose their salvation? Like, the rocky soil produces a plant, but then it dies. Is that describing someone who believed and was saved and then lost that belief? Or for that matter, what are the thorny plants? Jesus says that the weeds choke it out, but does it die? Or is it just stunted in its growth? Could that be describing someone that truly believes, but is so caught up in the world that they have trouble producing fruit? Another question that probably comes up is, you know, So then is this saying that there's nothing a person can do about their salvation? After all, the seed falls on these different types of soil. It's the type of soil that determines whether or not the seed takes root. And it's not as if the soil can exactly change itself. It can't get up and move to another location. So does this mean that if I'm the thorny soil, then my situation is helpless? And, and if I determine that someone else is the road soil, then I should just give up on them? And, and I could try to answer those questions within the scope of this analogy, but really, if we go that far, we're actually kind of missing the point of the parable. Keep in mind, Jesus isn't trying to is trying to communicate a full-orb theological system with this parable. Uh, don't get me wrong, I think what Jesus says here is completely consistent with the theology that we find in the rest of the Scripture, but I think we're probably going beyond Jesus' intent if we try to probe that deeply into the elements of this parable. This is an illustration, that's all. It's an analogy. And if you've ever used an analogy before, then you know that they have limits. There are parallels. They're like something else, but they're not the exact same thing. There's a point where every analogy begins to break down, right? So I think it's better that we just, rather than try to answer those questions, I think it's better that we just try to keep in mind what Jesus is addressing in this parable and why He is addressing it. He is addressing why some receive the gospel and others don't. And if we're paying attention, we can see that he's doing it really for two reasons. One, he's doing this in order to encourage the good soil, his disciples, by explaining to them why their brethren aren't believing. That would have been an encouragement for those first believers, just as it would have been for Matthew's Jewish readers, just as it is for us today. To know why some reject the clear truth of the gospel. And two, he's doing this to challenge and invite those who see the truth of the gospel, but are slow to fully embrace it. Remember, he's not just teaching this parable to the disciples. He's preaching it to the crowds as well. There is some benefit there. There are some people in the crowd who who have ears to hear this parable and understand. And Jesus intends for this parable to be heard by them. If I could put it this way, there are people in the crowd who are hearing this message of the kingdom and they understand and they want to believe, but they're not sure what they should do. To them, this parable serves as a warning. It is Jesus telling them, my message is, my, my, my message will not be received by everyone, and it will not be enough for you to give some kind of superficial or temporary commitment if you want to be in the kingdom. You need to commit all the way. That's the faith I'm demanding here. There is rocky soil out there in the crowd that is beginning to wilt under the pressure, and Jesus is calling on them to repent. There are rich young rulers there in the crowd. There are demises in the crowd, consumed by the things of this world. And Jesus is issuing this parable as an invitation for them to repent. They can understand. They, they can receive the seed and understand it. And they want to respond. But they're concerned by the things of the world. Or they're concerned about persecution. Jesus wants them to repent. In other words, this parable is intended to challenge the hearer to examine themselves and bring them to repentance. So if you can hear this parable and feel the conviction of it, then it really shouldn't be a reason to despair. There's opportunity here. There's a chance for repentance here. That's one of the purposes of this parable. Jesus means for the rocky soil and the thorny soil to hear this parable, feel the conviction of it, repent, and find life. He means for them to be good soil. So here's a question that you should be asking yourself this morning. What type of soil describes you? Are you the road soil? Have you so shut your heart off to the truth of the gospel that you're now dead to it? Have you so bought into the lies of the world that you now even find the gospel offensive perhaps? Does it maybe even anger you? What about the rocky soil? Could that describe you? Have you eagerly received the easier parts of the gospel without accepting the harder parts as well? Do you rejoice over justification but balk at embracing discipleship? Or to put the matter more squarely, are you unashamed of the gospel? Do you understand that it can make you unpopular and are you willing to still embrace it should that happen? Or perhaps even more accurately, when that happens. Could you be the thorny soil? I have to say, if I'm going to take a guess at which of these is the most likely possibility of the people sitting here in this room, this is where I would go. And I say this because you're coming to church, uh, so it doesn't make sense that you would be the road soil. If you were the road soil, then you'd probably be doing something else this morning. And we don't really face too much rejection for our faith in this society. Certainly younger people can face a kind of peer pressure to reject Christ, but outside of that, we American Christians are pretty much left alone at least until we start sharing the gospel, then we might face some rejection. But otherwise, there isn't too much cost to following Christ. And maybe, even, I don't know, even as I think about it, maybe there is a lot of rocky soil that we just don't know about, right? Because the persecution, that kind of rejection hasn't happened. Um, so maybe I'm wrong there. But I, I tend to think that's probably not the case uh, with, with the folks that are here. But oh, 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 do we live in a culture? that is filled with pride, ambition, licentiousness, and greed. And while our culture doesn't necessarily mind if you choose to follow Christ, it is relentless in its attempts to have you embrace all those other trappings as well. This is probably the biggest danger to the American churchgoer, that they would embrace the gospel amidst the thorns that will choke out their faith. The real threat to the American churchgoer is not that they will outright reject the gospel. It is unfruitfulness. It is that they will just gradually fade away. Could that be you? Are you so concerned with esteem or comfort or pleasure that it threatens to squelch your interest in Christ and his gospel? Or are you the good soil? Are you bearing fruit? And I just want to be especially clear here once again. This is not to say, are you sinlessly perfect? I think the temptation here is to hear this parable and go, you know, sometimes I'm afraid of the gospel. I must be the uh, of sharing the gospel. I must be the rocky soil, or I, I struggle with greed or pride or something like that. So I must be the thorny soil. That's to miss the point of what Jesus is saying about these different types of yield. Even good soil will typically have some rocks. Even good soil will have some weeds, but it still bears fruit. The question is not whether you have any of those fears or concerns at all. You're a sinner. Of course you have those things. The point is, do you possess those qualities to the point of utter fruitlessness? The rocky soil eventually walks away from Christ out of fear. It utterly rejects him. It withers and dies. The thorny soil chokes out the seed to the point of complete, complete fruitlessness. It produces no yield. Meanwhile, the good seed produces a yield of a hundredfold or 60-fold or even 30-fold. It's not sinless perfection that is demanded, but fruitfulness. Do you bear fruit? do you see a transformation occurring in your life as a result of your, and as a direct result of your relationship with Christ? Are you exhibiting the qualities that Jesus has called for in this gospel? And that's not mere performance. The question is, have you come to depend on God? Are you exhibiting faith? And from that faith, do you see worship and love springing up out of your life? That is the fruit that Jesus demands. Not mere religious performance, but worship and love springing up out of dependence and faith. Does that describe you? If so, if it does, then rejoice. Because it's a sign that God's seed abides in you. So which are you? I can tell you that when I was reading this passage 12 years ago, I knew who I was. Without a doubt. I was the thorny soil. I could read this passage and I knew. It was obvious. I didn't want to admit it, but that was me. And as much as I claimed to love Christ, for Christ and I prayed the prayer and you know all those different things I told people I was a Christian people knew me like that as much as I claimed to love Christ I loved other things more than him and because of that there was undeniably zero fruit in my life I had a little bible that I was reading at the time and I even wrote out that verse that specific verse on a small piece of paper and tucked it inside the front cover So that would be there every time I opened my Bible. Occasionally that piece of paper would even fall out on the ground and I would be reminded again of what the Bible actually said about me. So can soil change? I like to think that I did. I wouldn't be standing up here preaching to you today if I thought change couldn't happen. And do you know how it happened? It wasn't something that I did really. It was something that Jesus did. Jesus finally made me so desperate for life that I got to the point where I would finally confess my thorny heart to him and ask him for faith to believe, and he answered. So, what is the answer if you're sitting there today realizing that you're not good soil? How can you change? The answer is not going to be found in what you do, but in who you ask. After all, a field isn't going to weed itself, is it? It isn't the soil that's going to dig up the rocks out of the ground, but the farmer, right? That's what happened to me. I cried out to Jesus to deal with my thorny heart, and he answered. Now, do I still struggle with worldly, struggle with worldly desires? Of course I do, but at the same time, I've seen my Savior go to work in removing the weeds so that the gospel could penetrate, and I've seen that message take root and bear fruit that wasn't fruit, or there wasn't fruit before. So if you're sitting there realizing that you're not good soil, number one, don't despair. And number two, don't respond by going and trying to be good soil. You respond by going to the sower and asking him to remove the stones and thorns in your heart. You ask him to till up the earth and remove the weeds so that his message can dig deep and bear great fruit. Let's pray.